0: Breathless by John Tevlin. A mysterious disease had left my wife comatose and breathing through a ventilator. It all started with a broken ankle. A doctor leans over a 47 year old female patient and holds her eyelids open. The blue eyes stare vacantly, even as the doctor waves a torch beam across them. The patient did not respond to loud noise or tactile stimulation. The doctor writes on the woman's hospital chart. Gag was absent. Testing revealed lax tone in all limbs. Brain damage. Vegetable. The doctors do not use these words, yet they hover in long days and dark moments in the intensive care unit. Suddenly, for reasons no one understands, her lungs can't pump the necessary oxygen into her bloodstream. Doctors won't know if there's brain damage until she wakes up. If she wakes up. Meet unresponsive white female, Ellen Hatfield, my wife. A few days earlier, Ellen was admitted to Abbott Northwestern Hospital near our home in Minneapolis to get a broken ankle reconstructed with a metal rod. But something has gone very wrong. On Easter Sunday, April 23, 2000, I am sitting next to Ellen, watching her fade. Sisyphus, she says. What? Sisyphus, it's written in the air. There! Ellen points to a space above the bed. Ellen is hallucinating, I tell the nurse. She nods. Now Ellen seems disgusted with me. Sisyphus! The nurse is perplexed, but I am familiar with the myth. The gods had condemned Sisyphus to ceaselessly rolling a rock to the top of the mountain, whence the stone would fall back of its own weight. They had thought with some reason that there is no more dreadful punishment than futile and hopeless labour. Albert Camus, The Myth of Sisyphus. I know Ellen has read Camus, but in 12 years of marriage, Sisyphus has never come up. What is she trying to tell me? As it happens, no one is telling me much about Ellen's condition, except that it's worsening. Later that Sunday, they find her unresponsive and difficult to arouse, with an incredibly low oxygen level. She needs maximum doses, so doctors put an oxygen mask on her. She fights it. I hold her hand and struggle to keep the mask attached, but by Monday afternoon I'm exhausted. Nurse Kathy Patton Marsh, a thin, greying woman with a soft hand and firm voice, tells me to go home. Get some rest, she says. You'll need it. I kiss Ellen goodbye. Be back in an hour, I say. She is pale with a blue tint to her skin. Before I leave, I hear a staff member mention a possible diagnosis. Something called ARDS, Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome. When I get home, I type ARDS into an internet search engine. What pops up makes me want to vomit. ARDS is a medical emergency. It may be caused by a variety of conditions that cause blood vessels to leak fluid into the lungs. Some survivors suffer permanent lung damage, complications, multiple organ failure. The death rate is about 40%. I sit at my computer and weep. Ellen had several projects to work on this year in her public relations business, but now the house is still and Ellen's pack rat presence is everywhere. Stacks of books by dotty English Spinsters, her collection of antique purses from her beloved grandmother and her own exquisite photographs of old men and children taken in places like Seoul and Havana. In the bathroom are the needles and insulin that give away her reality. She has been physically frail ever since she learned at the age of 11 that she had diabetes. She's going to die, I think. When I get back to the hospital, she's on a ventilator. She's gone, submerged in morphine. Tubes snake from machine to mouth. Bags of drugs drip into her arm. Her chest swells, drops, swells, drops, as the machine pushes in oxygen and pulls out carbon dioxide. I show a nurse the article on ARDS. Don't read this, she says, and throws it in the rubbish bin. The hours blur. At some point, Tom Davis, our family doctor, briefs me. He's watched Ellen struggle with diabetes for years, overcoming insulin reactions, eye operations and broken bones. Ellen is very, very ill, Davis explains. They will try to keep her alive on a ventilator. If she's lucky... They will wean her off the drugs and then off the ventilator. But there are no guarantees. Some patients teeter between life and death on a daily basis. One sees merely the whole effort of a body straining to raise the huge stone, to roll it and push it up a slope a hundred times over. The myth of Sisyphus. Orange numerals glow on a stack of monitors above Ellen's head. Her oxygen saturation percentages hover between the mid-70s and 90. A nurse explains that a person with oxygen levels consistently below 90 is in dangerous territory. But ventilators are poor copies of the human body. They need to find the minimum setting that will keep the organs functioning. If they pump too little oxygen, the brain starts to suffocate, the liver and kidneys deteriorate and the body dies. If they pump too much, they can blow a lung. Mark Stang, a pulmonologist, snaps an X-ray into a light box on the wall. My wife's lungs look like two bags filled with smoke. Healthy lungs show up black, he says. Stang orders pressure control, which reverses how Ellen breathes. Conscious people exhale longer than they inhale. The machine causes her to inhale deeply, then exhale for a short time. Adjusting the pressure forces more air into Ellen's lungs. But her body thrashes, fighting this unnatural breathing pattern, so they need to give her paralytic drugs. If she's at all aware of her surroundings, she won't be in a few minutes. The numbers on the machine flicker 78, 81, 87, 83. Nurses turn Ellen on her stomach to try to increase oxygen intake. The numbers plunge wildly. And stabilise, then gradually rise. Come on, Ellen, I say. When is a person dead? The question haunts me now. I wonder if I might need to decide whether to turn off the ventilator. Ellen and I had said many times we would not want to be kept alive on a machine, but we never realised how complicated that decision is. Certainly, Ellen could be dead in minutes if we turned off the ventilator now. Is she in there, I wonder? We have no idea what she can hear, but Pat and Marsh pushes. Talk to her, touch her, let her know you love her. One after another, specialists check on Ellen's condition. Fragile. Tenuous. Critical. Each morning they photograph her lungs, and each day we ask the question, It looks better, right? Stang shakes his head. No. But Stang remembers something remarkable the patient he'd dubbed Miss Litchfield. A couple of years earlier, a 17-year-old girl who had planned to enter her town's pageant was like this, probably worse. She almost lost her life, but a last-minute dose of nitric oxide, an experimental treatment not yet approved by the US Food and Drug Administration, was credited with saving her. She didn't recover in time to compete, but officials named her Honorary Miss Litchfield. Today she coaches a high school dance team. Might this work for Ellen? Although studies so far have not shown nitric oxide to increase survival rates, it appears to relax the pulmonary muscles and allows the lungs to dilate, improving oxygen delivery to the blood. It doesn't seem to have negative effects. Ellen's condition has been virtually unchanged for five days. Unless they try something radical, Stang tells me, my wife is likely to die. I am paralysed with fear. Patton Marsh touches my hand. John, we don't have much time, she says. So I scribble my name on page after page of disclaimers and legalese. Let's do it, I say. At 9.30pm on April 30, respiratory therapists wheel a large tank of nitric oxide into Ellen's room. Half an hour later, Patton Marsh kneels beside me to say that Ellen's oxygen numbers have gone above 90. It seems to have worked, for the moment. Now comes the tedious dance of the ARDS patient. The almost continuous measurement of vital signs, the incessant adjusting of machine, drugs, feeding liquid. Then there's the hand-holding, toothbrushing, cheerleading. If she survives, Dr Davis tells me, it will be because of the nurses. So David Jacqua has become our new saviour. He is a slight, almost frail man with a soft voice wire-rimmed glasses and a faint goatee. He always volunteers for the tough cases, the gravely injured, the terminally ill, and those like Ellen, who require hypervigilance. I ask him why. He pauses, looks at the ceiling. She seems nice, he says. Ellen, I'm going to suction out your throat, he tells her. I know you don't like this very much, and I'm so sorry. Jackwa slides a small tube down her throat and it gurgles. Although Ellen is unconscious, she winces and her body recoils. Patting her hand, Jacqua talks about the weather, about his nephews, about how sorry he is she can't tell him if it hurts. He talks as though Ellen is a next-door neighbour. You are a caretaker, he tells me. I know because I am one myself. You have to remember to also take care of yourself. We're not good at that. The days begin to blur together as we watch Ellen's numbers. Obsessed with respirator settings, oxygen saturation, blood gases. "'How are you doing?' Jaqua asks me every day. "'I'm okay,' I say. "'Actually, I'm barely holding up. "'Some days a friend drives me home from the hospital in my car. "'Every day I discover another act of kindness. "'Someone has mowed the lawn, cleaned the house, "'filled the refrigerator with food. "'One night I say something I later regret.' But if Ellen can hear me, I think, maybe it will make her fight harder. Ellen, if you die, I say, I don't want to live. No single event causes everyone to start believing that Ellen will live. Instead, a hundred tiny movements over ten or twelve days give us hope. Incremental adjustments down on the elevator. The gradual easing off the sedatives. The flinch of recognition when someone speaks her name. On May 7, Ellen's eyelids flutter and she opens her beautiful blue eyes, if only for a moment. Several days later, the usually stoic Dr Stang once again snaps an X-ray of Ellen's lungs over a light. After a brief pause, he pumps his fist in the air and lets out a somewhat embarrassed, yes, the fog in Ellen's lungs is lifting. They move Ellen to a room with a window. They don't give window rooms to dead people, I think. I lean over the bed. Honey, can you kiss me? Ellen's arms strain to reach out, and with all her effort, she pulls her head off the pillow and puckers her lips. It is the sweetest kiss I've ever had. When I arrive the next day, several people are peering into Ellen's room. Something's wrong, I think. Then I see Jaqua, a huge smile creasing his face. He points to the corner where the ventilator sits, unplugged. Ellen is in a chair across the room, breathing. The rest of that day, Ellen tries to recognise faces and voices, fighting the morphine cobwebs that contain her. The following morning, nearly a month since our last coherent conversation, she greets me as though she'd just spoken to me yesterday. She has no idea of what we've been through. She can't talk yet, so she mouths, Hi babe. She doesn't understand why I'm crying. In the first few days after she wakes, Ellen can't even push the nurse's button. But each day physiotherapists give her a new goal. Sit up. Feed yourself. Pull yourself out of bed. Stand. Use a walker. Talk. As the weeks pass, her memory and cognitive skills improve. When someone suggests she hasn't lost anything, she rebuts, My brain is missing, but I started out so smart most people won't notice. Ah, I think, that's my Ellen. About a month after waking up, Ellen comes home. Everyone who experienced her illness takes away something different from it. Some turn to their Bibles to declare her a miracle. Others more comfortable with science refer to a medical miracle. I feel almost obligated to radically change our lives. Sell the house, move to Mexico, write a novel... Instead, we travel to Amsterdam, Belgium, Brazil. For months, we struggle with ways to repay the doctors and nurses. We want to do something especially meaningful for David Jacqua. Finally, Ellen frames a photo of three old men she took on a holiday in Istanbul. On the back, we write a tribute to David Jacqua, whose tireless, diligent and loving care allowed Ellen to continue to pursue her lifelong love of travel and photography. You are a fabulous nurse and an unforgettable person. I go to the hospital to give Jacwa the present. I'm sorry, says a nurse. David died about a week ago. He was found dead in his apartment almost a year to the day that he took my wife off her ventilator. He had taken his own life. I think back to what Jacwa had told me. Caretakers don't take care of themselves. Shortly afterwards, I stumble upon Sisyphus. It talks about the absurdity of life and the mysteries of death. Want absurd? The patient lives, but the nurse dies. The philosopher concludes that Sisyphus's journey teaches us to make peace with the burden of our lives, our rock. There is no sun without shadow, and it is essential to know the night. The struggle itself towards the heights is enough to fill a man's heart. Ellen and I have returned to our rock, though with a keener appreciation of the view when we push it to the top. She says I've become calmer, less obsessed with small transgressions. But I've also become fearful and more protective than she likes. Every so often, when I wake before Ellen, I lie beside her in the early morning light, studying her face. Eventually, her eyes open and I see that flash of blue. You're looking at me again, she says. I know, I answer. For more RD talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Reader's Digest Australia. Narration by Zoe Mernier. Sound production by Ricky Price.